Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Today, we're going to speak with a farmer who farms 30,000 acres of row crops in western Kansas. For those of you who are not really familiar with farming, that is a lot of land. He mentions in the interview that many farmers kind of have the magical number of if they could just get to 10,000 acres, they'll have made it. And he does this large-scale farming of 30,000 acres with only nine full-time employees. Now, of course, they have to have some harvest staff, but in general, it's just in, an incredible testament to where technology has brought us today, where a small team working on one farm can manage a massive area and hundreds of thousands of bushels of grain every single year. I first learned about Lawn Fromm when I was a student at the Kansas State University Masters of Agribusiness program. You'll hear him mention Dr. Alan Featherstone of the MAB program, and that's the one he's referring to in the interview. As I said, he's a farmer in western Kansas, and when he took over his family farm at age 28 due, due to the untimely death of his father, they grew the farm from 6,600 acres to now about 30,000 acres farmed. In the midst of that 30-year time span, he said his turnover of employees leaving has been basically zero. So he keeps his employees happy and he continues to grow every year. In this episode, we talk about how he has managed this growth what he looks for in people that he hires, what they contribute to the team, and how growing to the size he's at now helps his operation run more efficiently. Where you'll hear the term economies of scale mentioned very often. So if you're not an economics major, basically what we're referring to how is how growing large in size can give you an advantage in terms of cost. So growing these 30,000 acres of grain every year with only nine employees, he's able to keep his costs relatively low on an incremental basis from if he was only growing 10,000 acres. It's really interesting. I enjoyed talking to Lon, and he's a fascinating guy, and he talks a lot about the group he has of his peer group farmers that are all of similar size, um, large scale farmers, I'll call them, that they get together and they uh, are completely transparent with each other about their business and they help each other grow. I think there's a huge take home here for everybody that if you're not in a group of your peers in your industry that you can trust to be completely transparent with and get feedback from, I think there's a gem there for all of us. But without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Lon Fromm of Fromm Farmland in Western Kansas. Well, Lon Fromm, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thanks. I always enjoy participating in any kind of an educational event that I can. Great. Well, if whether, you, whether I'm the student or the professor. Absolutely. Could you start off just by telling us a little bit about your operation, Fromm Farmland? Okay, right now it's cash grain only, or and we raise only wheat and corn, both irrigated and dry land. It's 
grown greatly over the years since I took over in 1986, and we've gone from about 6,600 acres to exactly 30,000 today, and roughly a third of that is irrigated by center pivot. We do all of our own harvesting, grain storage, drying, spraying. There's very little that we don't do in-house. And how many employees do you have? Depending on how you count, there's nine. doesn't count my financial guy or myself or summer interns. So it would be nine. And what do those nine people do? Well, we run three combines, and we run four of everything else. When we plant, there's four planters. When we um, do strip tillage, there's four strip till rigs. And then harvest like three combines, and that takes three grain cart guys, so there's six. And it always takes one or two people around the headquarters to keep things coordinated. But we've got people that are, have very special skills, too. I have one guy that's certified electrician. I have one guy that's a very accomplished cabinet maker and carpenter. I've got one guy that could make his living as a truck mechanic or has. So we look to have as much cross-training or cross-ability as possible, but obviously it's not clear across the board. Um, I can still drive a combine, and I do drive a semi, but I would be lost inside of the self-propelled sprayer. And as you've grown, you said, how big was the farm when you took over? 6,600 acres when my father passed away, 30 years ago, exactly. Wow, 6,600 acres to now 30,000 acres, you said? 30,000. That's yeah. unbelievable. So it, in nine people just does not sound like very much at all. How, how has how many people were on the payroll when you had 6,600, and how did that growth process happen? There were my brother, myself, and two people. So there were four total with the 6,600, and we felt like we were extremely efficient then, which, you know, which we were. The growth has kind of been a 1,000 acres here, a 1,000 acres there, pretty linear or gradual. A lot of people want to grow for growth's sake or get excited about large, even numbers. There's kind of a mystique about 10,000 acres. What is it after that? The 20, you know, the 25. But I've really resisted growing for growth's sake and always try to evaluate every opportunity as a standalone whether it adds or uh, subtracts from the rest of the operation. Uh, this last year was the first time in, gosh, I can't remember how long, where I have not added any acres to the operation. And what's really has happened is we've had neighbors retired or saw that their operation wasn't working, and I've been able to come in and um, lease all their acres or buy some and, and lease some. And uh, I don't know, one time I counted how many farms and jobs had been, like, I don't know if the word would be displaced or not by my expansion. And one time I had, it was over 10, and I did, added two employees that whole time. That just kind of puts into numbers, you know, very quickly what economies of scale can do, the amount of people, employees that were trying to be supported, and then all I had to do, all I did was create two jobs. Yeah, and like, that's when you see the amount of farms, farmers, you know, and farmsteads coming down, you know, almost crashing in our area anyway. Could you speak a little bit more to that economies of scale? What's allowed you to do that? Okay, well, it's all technology. Everything's going to boil down to technology, whether it's how to build a planter that's three times wide or something that goes faster, uh, something that stirs itself, something allows you to spray way past when you might because there's guidance. And uh, I don't know, it's 
the farmers say, oh, well, we've got to have it because the equipment maker's making it's there. And then the equipment makers say, oh, we've got to make it because that's the farmers are there and we'll lose our customers. So a lot of that has always seemed like a little bit of a chicken and an egg. But deciding which technology to adopt and what is the right point to adopt it is an awful lot of the success or that's going to determine a lot of your success. And you don't want to be the absolute first person to try someone, but try some new technology, but um, you certainly don't want to be one of the last people on the bandwagon. If you'll remember from MAB, but Alan was always saying the only true sustainable advantage was being able to adapt and learn more quickly than your competition. And so it's that dealing with technology is what I could give credit to uh, what I'm doing and where and how today. And before we were recording here, you mentioned that you gave a lot of credit to your employees, that they're very good on the technology side. How have you been able to assemble a team of people that that are so capable? You know, almost everything we do, everyone is self-taught in in some way or another out of that team. And I have to say, no one really has ever quit in 30 years. I've got people that have been with me 36 years, 31 years, 15 years, 12 years. But I've had zero turnover, which has really, really helped. And, you know, they don't have schools and lessons on an awful lot of this stuff. You have to be interested in it and excited about it yourself and be a self-starter. And fortunately, I've got people that are very interested in what they do and they want to know more. And uh, the girl and I read on the internet, or, and I try to, I'm really big on continuing education. So if there's some kind of a class or workshop or special school, I'm always making sure there's at least one person going to it. And there's a lot of things like that. I've made sure everyone has to go once just so they know what, what kinds of things are being taught. The ag journalism world is very, very important. And I'm sure increasingly online, although I'm at my age, I'm still kind of drawn towards uh, print and, and hands-on things. So I guess the answer would be, you're probably going to have to figure out an awful lot of this stuff yourself, the same time everyone else is. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing to me, your, your zero turnover, because for those people listening, Lawn's not exactly located in, in the Bahamas, where everybody you know is flocking to. Uh, you're, in, you're in western Kansas, right, Lawn? Right, yeah, Colby. We're 50 miles from Nebraska and 50 miles from Colorado, but we're the biggest town for 100 miles. Yeah, I used so, to um, used to live in Bird City, and we'd go to, we'd go to Colby whenever we wanted to go to the big town. Okay, cool. Yeah, you know, uh, Colby's the metropolis and 5,000 people. That's right, the oasis. <laughs> that that too. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, just amazed on 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 the turnover piece. I think that is just truly fascinating. If I remember correctly, you, you're part of a mastermind. In fact, you, you mentioned that you're planning your, I don't know if you call it a mastermind, that's what I'm calling it, but a group of farmers that are of your size. Could you speak a little bit about that group? Right. And, uh, it's how you called guys- a farming peer group, and the peer group concept has been going on a long time in other industries. For instance, when I'd first been invited to join this, I was skeptical, but I was visiting with my Ford dealer, and he said, oh, that's, they had a name for it. He said, I've been doing that for 30 years meeting once or twice a year with four dealers from my size from across the United States. And he said, that's the best thing we've ever done. And after I listened to him, I thought, oh, yikes, I hope it's not too late to get signed back up. Danny Kleinfelter at uh, Texas A&M has been latched onto the idea and thought it's the next step in agricultural 
executive education has been heavily promoting it the last probably six, seven years. Uh, Montana was on board briefly and uh, was responsible for the group that I'm in. And uh, Farm Journal has kind of taken over and they have their own uh, organization uh, network of peer groups. We have um, seven farms in my group from 10,000 to 55,000 acres. And uh, I'm actually the oldest guy in the group at age 58. And at 30,000 acres, I'm about in the middle of the size. So I, it's the only group I can think of where I'm actually the oldest person, not uh, one of the younger ones. So I think everyone that's in our group would tell you that it's the best thing they've ever done for their operation. It's the time and effort that we put into it. And uh, I try to say, well, you know, no one's really ever written a book on how to farm 30,000 acres or 50,000 acres. We've had to figure this out. And the only person we're possibly going to be able to learn anything from is somebody that's doing the same thing and that's had to figure it out for themselves. So that, and then um, you couldn't hire the kind of uh, review that we get and criticism or evaluation from each other. There wouldn't be people qualified, even if you had all the money you wanted to, to, to hire uh, consultants. So we're our own best consultants, I feel like. And then the ability to leave your county or leave your state and know that no one's listening and watching and you can say whatever you want to say and people will nod their head or pat you on the back and say, yeah, we know. So if so for all those reasons, I think it's incredible. If there was another farmer in your county that, that was of equal size to you, could, could they join or is that restricted somehow? The recommendation when uh, these were being grouped up was that we'd be, I think, 150 or 200 miles apart. The theory being that we didn't want to wind up in any type of competition with somebody else in our group, whether it was for renting land or, you know, a labor supply or something. We do have three farms in Kansas, and we're 100 miles or so apart. We were friends and familiar with each other before this started, so... We don't think there's ever going to be a problem, but we've got guys in South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Illinois, and that's not counting the guys that farm in more than one state. And when you all get together, what format does that learning take? I mean, how exactly is it set up? We get together for uh, three and a half days. There's a lot of socializing, but it's we interview each other's employees. We turn over every single financial to the group. And uh, it's, we do a 360-degree analysis uh, and then SWOT, just like in business school, here and forever. And after the three days, the last day, the group presents to the host everything that they thought they've seen, good and bad, and usually uh, a small number of what they want to call high-impact recommendations for the farm. Before the group shows up, the farmer's supposed to list things that he can you know, topics of concern, things he would like answers to. But, of course, more often than not, people don't see the trees for the forest and uh, they're missing the big picture. And what we wind up telling them is not what they had questions about. Because they're close, too close to the problem, basically? They're too close to the problem. They don't want to acknowledge it. And an awful lot of the time, it is uh, interpersonal dynamics with families, between families, relations, employees. 
That's fascinating. And I, I think uh, like you had alluded to, probably in any industry or any job to find peers that you can be completely transparent with and receive honest feedback has got to be extremely valuable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had no idea what all, you know, kind of this lonely at the top. I don't want to completely claim to be the top, but, you know, at a certain size, there's only so many operations every, you know, in every county or so many counties between similar operations. And, uh, yeah, to have the courage to, to meet up and then to, to be able to get, sometimes they call it jokingly getting naked in front of each other, which is what you are when you turn over all your financials and tax returns and balance statements. Yeah, it's got to feel and, that way. Yeah. And then uh, also uh, personality tests. So everyone not only, yeah, it's getting naked in front of each other. And it's a little funny at first, but we've all gotten used to it. And uh, it creates a very high level of trust between members in the group. Hmm. And it, what's, I, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of value out of it, but uh, can you speak to, one of the biggest lessons that you've learned from the group? You know, I think it's maintaining a level, for me, it's maintaining a level of uh, energy that, uh, you know, being the oldest one, I forget, you know, these guys that are younger and I look at what they've achieved and I think, man, if I could have been where they are when I was their age, but it's keeping focused. I think and you, it's so easy to get, you know, settled into one position and get a little bit comfortable but when you're around other people that are so sharp, you want to stay sharp yourself or not that we compete with each other, but just, yeah, on the way we compete with each other. But we share and evaluate and, you know, we want to be on the same level. But, yeah, I think more than any one specific practice, all of us are really good at something or we're better than somebody else at something. But, yeah, I like the – we talk about getting recharged we can get a little worn down and then every six months we meet back up with this group and everyone gets all excited again. So yeah, it's about keeping sharp and getting excited. That's really neat. I, I want to get for sure. You know, is this sharpening the saw that's in the this cubbies? Is it? Yeah. The seven habits. Seven practices. Yeah. Yep. Is the last one sharpen the saw? I yes. It is. Yes, it is. Yeah. I want to get back to what you mentioned earlier about, uh, I know you, you said you hadn't this year, but in the past you, you've been acquiring a little bit of land every year, eventually, you know, getting up to farming this 30,000 acres. H how do you acquire land? For those that aren't farmers, how does that happen? Is it typically through an auction or people come to you and say, hey, will you buy my land at a fair market value? How practically does that work? Well, by private treaty or the phone rings or there's an auction for the purchasing, um, renting, there are people that are pretty aggressive, and I try not to uh, not to be aggressive. I'd rather someone comes to me, or at worst, me dropping a hint that you know if you if you would ask me, I would give you a, a bid. And a lot a lot of it's word of mouth or down between generations or neighbors. There's obviously some guys that are very aggressive and some guys that aren't. We own or um, my family owns about two thirds of what my my farm operation is that's uh it's that's a real nice balance between um rented and owned we're not we're not in danger of losing a lot of the rented ground really at any one time but you know it's going to be a combination of renting and owning if i didn't rent the ground that i do it would make it a lot harder to grow quickly it takes a lot of time to generate enough capital from one piece of ground to leverage it into another piece of ground but once you get that system going, it's it's easier to maintain that 
that first quarter of ground they say that's the toughest one to make work. Because you can leverage the first one and the second one and so on? Yeah. The first one's hard. Once the first one's paid for, you can leverage that one and the second one and probably make it work really. But then, but then the third one, it doesn't take the whole initial. Yeah, you can see how it works. And then at, at some point, it's just easy to add one here, one there. And um, then the question is, when do you stop? Or uh, why stop? And people say, well, what's enough? Or when are you going to stop? I say, well, why? I'm having too much fun. <laughs> so you don't you don't or, have uh, a definitive answer there. And as long as you're having fun, you'll keep going, right? Right. Yeah, until there's a reason not to. Until it's not fun anymore. I have um, no heirs. And that's what really mystifies a lot of people about why would I keep going or why, why growing because it's I don't have anyone to turn it over to. But uh, that's all the more reason in some ways. Now, are you always going to be fine? Go ahead. I've received questions uh, before from people about what is a family farm or what constitutes a family farm versus a corporate farm. I would assume you consider yourself a family farm. Right. You know, there's about half the states in the Midwest that have anti-corporate farming laws. And it means that, you know, a car dealer, somebody can't come in and buy ground and operate it. Kansas is one of those anti-corporate farms, but there are uh, allowances for closely held family corporations. And so uh, there are corporate entities within what I do. But I think if there's a, an owner member that's on the ground, that that it's family farm. You know, if there's somebody that is out watching, looking, driving, touching, whatever, and is one of the owners, I, I think they consider it that it's family farm. Uh, might be a family of one. It could be multi-generational. But, yeah, it's a family farm as long as the person that's on the ground has some relationship to the owning ownership of it. Yeah, and to the operation itself. To the operation, yeah. And then, uh, of course, multi-generational is going to be a big part of that, too. I'm a sixth generation here in Toms County to farm. Yeah, there's a few seven, seven generations around here. But, yeah, I'm sixth. When you when you came to speak to us at the Kansas State Master of Agribusiness program, I remember you talking about some of the the specific economies of scale, such as uh, storage. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, the grain storage. Exactly. The storage that does a, the most for me, obviously, you you know, store store and hopefully wait for the price to go up. Well, that to me, that's the very last reason you want storage. My storage is all about logistics. It's all about having short hauls for the trucks. It's all about not having to wait in line in town. It's about being able to harvest grain at high moisture and dry it myself. It's about, you know, getting to start harvest early because I've got grain dryers. But, yeah, my deal isn't storing grain and hopefully wait for the price to go up. You can wait for the price to go up just by getting on the board of trade. So why would you want to have all the risk of storage risk of uh, having your grain around the farm? Yeah, and you have an actual your your own grain elevator, right? Right. It's essentially it doesn't. It's not built out of concrete, but it's uh, two million bushels capacity, which is larger than most of the country elevators around us. Uh, we're not on a rail line, but feed grains and corn tend to move north and south, and there are basically not railroad tracks going north and south. So the uh, wheat moves east and west by rail, and uh, corn mostly moves north and south and by truck. 
So I have exactly the same markets that elevators in town do. We both load out my truck, and the trucks all go south to feedlots and ethanol plants. Yeah, that makes sense. And for, for those of you who are, are trying to follow along, not from a grain background, you know, the logistics of trying to get the crop when ready out of the field in time to store it and to keep it in good condition are just tremendously complicated when, when you're talking the amount of volumes that, that Lon has. So with his own elevator and his own trucks, he's able to basically take care of every aspect of, of the logistics supply chain to, to keep his grain in good quality. I thought that was interesting. The, the other one that sticks out, if I remember right, is um, you spoke some about self-insuring. Is that still something that you do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's another economy of scale issue. I think maybe I told you guys that if you weren't careful, you could insure yourself out of business because there's almost nothing you can't insure for. Now we can insure for weather, insure for yields. You can in, sure for price but if you're shifting risk away from someone else's assuming your risk they're going to want a premium and that premium might be where your profits are and so i've always been raised or thought or followed the practice that um, the more risk i can afford to assume the more i'm going to come out ahead in the long run for instance in my family i don't think any of my ancestors have ever bought hail insurance and the idea was we would be geographically spread out enough that any one hailstorm could only hit, you know, 10 or 15 or 20% of the ground. And that in the long run, we would come out ahead. And I know we've come out way, way, way ahead. I don't carry full coverage insurance on the vehicles. So some of the buildings, so that um, my office building isn't insured. And I looked at the premiums and looked at the perceived risks and um, just made that call. And some people can't believe that I don't have, you know, don't have that insured. But, well, no. And then we can go back, and I can, can show them and say, "Geez, I'm this far ahead right now." Uh, like on the vehicles, I figure we can what total three or four or five pickups and still be ahead for not for not having um, full coverage insurance over the last thirty years. It's it's incredible. So I, it's essentially just being able to think for yourself and really assess risk on your own. Right, yeah, deciding how much risk you want to assume and deciding what risks are worth it and which ones you don't want to take. And uh, the economies of scale or the amount of equity that you've got built up is going to will determine an awful lot of that. But as time goes on, I, I probably, there's a lot of people that can't afford that risk, you know, don't have enough reserves to put in the next year's crop. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be a decision you make based on your own, your own right. balance sheet, right? And then you have to convince your lender that you, because so many people are used to buy this or that kind of insurance. Yeah. But that, a lot of that compound, you know, a dollar 10 years ago or 20 years ago got to pay down debt or got to be invested at, at what could be a compound investment. So um, this gets to be a bigger and bigger deal every year for me. Yeah. A lot of our, a lot of our listeners are, in the inputs business, they, they typically sell to farmers. So I'm just curious from your perspective, what's, uh, what's advi- what advice would you give to somebody who it's their job to, to sell products to farmers if they're approaching a client such as yourself? Okay. I've said in a lot of things, it's all better to have with a lot of my suppliers. The more we know about each other, we can trust each other. The more we can kind of give each other an idea of what's good. So I relationships you can whether or not you're going to make money that day or that as it, it all can be future. And then the more about someone, the more I'm going to try. So 
build relationships. Yeah, really get to know the person. That makes sense. As you look into to the future here, what worries you about the future of ag and what excites you about it? Well, the the two the two big ones are government and water. <laughs> and I suppose it could be on the other side, government and weather also. Um, what's exciting? What's exciting is the new technologies and the technologies that we could never have thought of. Things are upside down from five years ago, the way we do everything. And then 10 years ago, I don't think we could have even dreamt up in our furthest imagination some of the things that we're able to do today. And I'll look at the guys and say, well, geez, what's happened in the last five years? Can you just imagine, you know, the next five or 10? So that's what, it, that's what is exciting is not knowing what's around the curve, but knowing that you're going to be able to deal with it in management, what, manage it, whatever it is. Um, so one of my guys says, well, every day is different. It's one thing he likes about his job and every day is different because things change so fast. As you think about the future of agriculture in your, in your group, uh, I guess that all have, like you said, 10,000 plus acres of ground. Is that group growing? Are, are more farms going that direction? Oh, ab- absolutely. The growth has been it's been explosive. I don't think anyone thought that things would get this big, this fast. I was, there's two guys that are about the same size, but um, we've got people that have gained 20,000 acres, you know, in just four to five years. I guess we'd say rapid cones. The consolidation of agriculture has been more rapid than anyone would have would have guessed. I had a guest speaker at my farm back when I was 10,000 acres, and I had a group in and. Someone said, well, how big? And he kind of was throwing his arms back and said, I suppose there's someday we could see 20 to 30,000 acre farms. And I was just kind of, yeah, when shaking my head, you know, not not thinking that in less than 10 years uh, he would be talking about me. Hmm. And I don't see anything on board that's going to stop this. I don't know if that should be scary or not, but all the things that are brought it about I don't see anything that's going to stop them. Well, to think that, I mean, in, in theory, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you could double your size from where you're at now and still only have a staff of 18 people plus harvest help. Yeah, I've, I've always wondered where the inefficiencies are going to show up, and I've always thought it's when you have to add a middle layer of management, then you're going to lose efficiency. But I think as long as you can avoid having a whole level of management that doesn't really um, – add value in the end that there's, yeah, there's not going to be a whole lot of limit. And if you think about the communications that we have now that really have eliminated what would have had to have been a middle level of management, everybody on my farm has an iPad and everybody on my farm has an iPhone and we communicate, we share data, we share apps, we run grain bins, we run irrigation sprinklers, all from the apps, and then we can share with each other instantaneously what's going on through uh, Dropbox and Google Drive. And as everyone, as anyone finishes a field or makes a list, they just put it in the cloud, and everybody else is alerted to it or can look it up. And you know, as long as we can can, can communicate and manage like that, you know, I don't think we're going to need that middle manager. And so, yeah, I really do wonder what's going to be the next the next limiting factor. Well, we'll run up against a wall. 
You mentioned earlier that every one of the people on your staff has something that they really excel at. I mean, one guy that could be, you know, a full-time mechanic and, and so on. What would you say is your big strength or your big contribution to the organization? I'm kind of the guy who hangs on to the rudder and steers. The time I said to my lender, I was back and, and I said, you know, there's days I'm not sure exactly what I do. And he just smiled and he said, you're the one that holds all this together. So I'm a visioning person. I'm a person that imagines things and uh, helps others to to make them happen. And so, um, yeah, not everybody's a visioning person or the coordinating person or the, I don't want to say dreaming person, but yeah, the person in charge of the steering. With with your amount of growth and zero turnover, you're doing something right. There's some magic there somewhere. Well, thanks. Uh, Maybe uh, as long as it's as long as it's fun. Yeah, yeah. As long as it's fun. One more question. You know, sometimes I don't always know what to ask because th- these podcasts are just as much beneficial to me as they are to anyone else who listens. While I learn, anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to mention before we close? Oh, that's usually my favorite question for other people. One general thing about not everyone thinks about or realizes about farming is you have to be pretty good or awfully good at a wide, wide range of things. And like we talked about employees with certain skills, you have to, as the manager or owner, you have to, if you don't have that skill, you're going to have to hire it done. And then you're also going to have to the wisdom or the self-knowledge to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I think that right there is the difference between success and not success is uh, knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, and then knowing what you better go hire, hire out. And if you've got all that mastered, you're going to be ahead of 90% of everybody else. But that's a tough thing to admit that you don't know everything or try to find out what you don't know. Or just some back to say, you know, I can't be great at everything. I'm going to find someone else who is. And there are probably not many businesses besides farming that have as many different areas of knowledge that are required. You know, dealing with plants, dealing with machinery, dealing with finance, dealing with government, dealing with weather, and having almost no control over any of it. And markets. And markets. (laughs) Yeah. Markets and international politics and everything that runs the markets. Do you do all your own marketing? Price takers and in everything that we do. Yeah, I do all my own marketing. We've had that. Yeah, I do. A little bit here and there experience um, talking to people that have got advice to give, but I always say that if they really knew, they would be sitting on the beach somewhere sipping a drink. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trying to sell me their information. If they really knew, they would already be retired. As of, I say that a lot about that. As a former merchandiser, I, I can agree to that. I, I think I've actually said that a couple times. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I keep saying that to people. Say, hey, if they really knew, they would be retired. Yeah, and they sure wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> and sitting and sitting on a beach somewhere. Yeah. I don't know that I'd want to sit on the beach the whole time. It would get boring pretty fast. But, yeah, anytime someone wants to sell me that or wants to hire somebody else, I just kind of grin and say, yeah. If they really knew, they'd be gone. You know, they'd be gone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lon, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. This has been fun for me to to learn a little bit about, more about what you do, and I think people are going to 
it's going to be eye-opening for them to see, you know, what you're able to do and, and how you efficiently use your resources at your disposal. So it's, it's pretty cool. Cool. Thank you. All right. Glad, glad to help. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lon Fromm of From Farmland in Western Kansas, near Colby, Kansas. If you'd like to learn more about Lon and his operation, you can go to their website at fromfarmland.com. That's F-R-A-H-M farmland.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope if you haven't already, you'll take a moment to go to the Future of Agriculture podcast on iTunes, hit the subscribe button, and leave us a rating, please. That's how we offer the social proof to others to let them know that our podcast is legitimately offering value in the agriculture industry. Really appreciate you. And as always, you can hit me up on Twitter at Tim Hammerich with any comments about the podcast or about future guests. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com, that's A-G-G-R-A-D.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.